think about this um, this aspect of karma, all aspects, and one of the other aspect that um, comes to the fore all the time, uh, especially in discipleship and the karma, is sex, all forms of sexuality. It's um, easy to follow the Dharma if you're celibate. If you have two lives as, as a celibate, uh, then you have real problems. Um, adjusting to a life of normal living where suddenly there's a, a relationship issue um, to, to be dealt with. You have, you have some scars coming through of um, tendency towards celibacy and there you have a, a, a wife uh, for instance, that somehow you have to relate to to maybe make children. Uh, it produces and can produce lots of tensions. Um, the celibate one has to actually fix up that particular samskara. But what often happens instead is this. You may have one, one or two lives of, of celibacy. Um, in other words, when normal karma into relationships with the opposite sex has not been, well, say opposite sex, it could be whatever, um, sexually has not been properly expressed. So then you have one life of incredible indulgence. You're sort of catching two lives of lack of having sex in one life where basically you're um, walking pain with an erect penis. Uh, and it can be the same for, for a woman. Or whatever their version is, um, because of um, those samskaras have to be fixed up, and the master will see this and allow this life of indulgence of a certain life, and then it's fixed up, it's cleansed. You can see that this um, path that we follow, and I'm talking Lingma Wai specifically, Latin Galuk, is one of writing your samsara. Writing your samskaras to enlightenment. You don't look as shunyata as a goal. You don't look as samsara as a place to abide in. You look at samsara as being intrinsically empty of anything that's of reality. Um, but it itself is real. It is self. Without samsara, there's no Buddhahood. Without chunyuta, there's no basis to samsara. You need both to became, become an enlightened one. You need to ride the two in fusion. Seeing that everything is empty of itself, but seeing that it is the methodology of becoming wise, of developing a bodhicitta, you have to use samsara to its maximum. Two, fulfill your obligations with all sentient beings to educate them, because that's what makes your body suffer. And to renounce all of those poisons, you know, pride, lust, all those types of um, poisons um, that tie you to samsara, to bind your mind and your emotions to samsara, to free your mind from all forms of attachment, to anything that is transient. And then you ride upon your non-attachment to Buddhahood. The samsara is recognized for what it is, but it is ridden upon. It is your vehicle of enlightenment. It is your vehicle of service.
It is the only way to liberation. And the liberation here is not shunyata. The liberation here is dhammakaya. Is the body of the Buddha, the body of the Dharma, the source or fountainhead of all revelation. You can see quite clearly, therefore, that we do not try in any way to ignore or shun our karma. Whatever is our karma, that is rightfully our karma, we take that on board happily and willingly, like Jesus did when he was praying in, in the um, Mount of Olives, you know, Father, uh, uh, forgive them, they don't know what to do, but anyway, um, now not, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, because he knew in the morning he would be arrested and would suffer some excruciating tortures before being crucified on that cross. He knew full well what was ahead of him. He did not run away from his karma. And it was his karma. He knew quite clearly that. That was his mechanism of escape from samsara. That was his way of educating the masses of people. The bodhisattva way. All who are bodhisattvas, when their eyes are awakened, take on board fully and consciously whatever their karmic role is, their karmic burden. In Angie's case, for instance, taking on three children. My case too, I suppose. Uh, because um, that is um, a karmic uh, due or residue from um, maybe being a monk in uh, a past life. Uh, we could go into the reasons for, for instance, having to be burdened with children when all you really want to do is um, paint, meditate, uh, and study the good books. For others, it can be the opposite. They may want children, can't help it. For others, uh, it may have um, be a, a debilitating sickness that may be to be cleansed, worked through. But it's done consciously with your eyes open. For me, it's simply being in a physical body. <laughs> it's uh, not something I really like to repeat too often, but it's uh, a chore that needs to be done. So all of you can see this. Therefore, we do not take on, per se, um, robes to be celibate. We don't need to dress up fancily or specially to show others that we're um, religious or of high spirituality. We don't have to assume these types of airs. Of course we, we manifest the signs of our devotion, the signs of, of our obedience to all sentient beings in our various ways. Um, we must manifest around us all the symbols of our religion, of our aspiration to a high consciousness states, because that is what serves others best. So in everything that happens, um, you learn wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing. Wisdom and love, the two together is bodhicitta. Um, the mind of enlightenment. Um, but this mind is compassion. On the whole, discipleship or the calm of discipleship is woven in such a way 
that you become wiser and wiser and more compassionate and more non-caring of what you, what the I, me, mine wants. It is thrown by the wayside, eventually trampled on. You become the wrathful deity, the, the key trampling on the form of your I, me, mine, your ego, your concept of self. It is worthless trash, rubbish. So immaterial, especially when you see the whole stream of your past lives. That this is just another one of a whole menagerie of pain and suffering, pain and suffering. Uh, the wheel turning and turning, body after body. Discarding one, taking on another one. Male, female, female, male. And so it goes on. Until, eventually, Bodhisattva, you become, you learn the ways of bliss. And... Yes, you become a Buddha in the end. It's not an ambition either you um, aspire towards either. Whether you become Buddha or not a Buddha is immaterial. Um, what you are here for is to unfold the path of service the best way you can. The goal is not your enlightenment, so to speak. The goal is the enlightenment of all those around you. That is what makes you humble. That is how you overcome your ego. And believe me, it's the best way. When you try to actually enlighten, awaken, educate, truly educate, those that are your fellow human beings, show them the light, and you get all of the ignorance level reactions to that guidance, you are humbled. It's very difficult to actually lead somebody out of darkness to light. Especially if you're, you yourself are only half full of light. So this is the Sangha. And we're talking about um, karma and the Sangha. The Sangha is one of the precious jewels for good reason. Because it is your mechanism of educating each other how to become Buddhas. And you must listen to each other. The Dharma, of course, is the teaching. But from the, the, the reality is, what is the correct, pure, authentic Dharma? And what are all the whisperings on the way? All the seductions that you can follow? This house of mine is full of books, all different types of Dharma. Um, all the various different types of Buddhist sects, and some say um, the uh, chanting the holy name of Amida Buddha over and over again is the way to liberation. Amita, Amita, Amitiyosa, Amitabha, Amita, Amita, Amitiyosa, Amitabha. You can say that again and again and again. This particular sect um, of um, Buddhism, and believe me, it's very popular in Japan and China, um, says this. It does not matter what you do, how cruel you are, as long as you say this over and over again, you're going to be born in the paradise realm of Amitabha. And that is your liberation. What I'm getting to, anyway, <coughs> is that the true authentic Dharma is very hard to find. When you read the religious books, and all of you have, and before you've met the Master, the religious books are signposts on the way. Some teachers everywhere are signposts on the way. They give you, they've been sent to you to read. They may not have all the answers. 
and they may and certainly will be erroneous in many aspects of them. But here and there are things, clues, signs on the way that awaken aspects of your consciousness, that awaken your heart to higher revelatory teachings. And at a certain stage you realize that this book or this teaching is redundant, you discard it, you go and seek another and a higher and a higher. And eventually the highest possible is found for you in this life. This brings in another concept to do with karma and discipleship. The karma, the highest possible that can be found for you in this life, depends on your past lives. Is this the first or the second life that you have practiced the Dharma? Or is it the 20th or the 30th or the 40th life? Is treading the Bodhisattva path so easy for you that it is an instinct? You're automatically help sentient beings. You automatically seek out the highest teachings and find them. All of the teachings in the books are easily seen for what they are by your mind. You're hungering for much more than that. Or do you find the elementary texts of any religion difficult to bear, difficult to understand? Or is it the first teaching that comes your way, satisfies you, you know, don't want any more? It's all you need. Your cup is a thimble and you've given it to the first teacher and they've poured it in. And that's all that can be filled into it. Any more water, any more dharma that puts, is put into that cup just flows away uselessly. Or do you bring a bucket? Or do you bring something like a bathtub? Or do you bring something like a lake or an ocean to fill up? And no matter what is poured in, you can absorb it all and you want more. There's a whole cosmos of awareness, of revelation, of dharma to unfold. And no matter what level you're at, there's always the next step. There's level after level of dharmakaya. Dharma. So the karma is to lead you to the level of the dharma that is most useful for you. And what is most useful for you may not be useful to somebody over there. What you're learning, for instance, as a Buddhist, is not all that useful to that person over there practicing um, the um, Catholic religion. They're not interested. It's not their, the, it's not the cup that they want to fill up. They can find some use in what you have to say about compassion and all the rest of it, but you're not talking to them about Jesus. You're talking to them about Buddha or Guru in reality, we're talking about the same thing. But their cup will not accept that type of liquid. They turn it upside down. What you see, therefore, is the Lord of Liberation, the Lords that guide all of our planet's evolution, the great Bodhisattvas that are planning everyone's incarnations. They're quite happy to have that bunch of Christians over there and the Hindus um, of all the various sects um, praying and worshipping um, Ganesh and Shiva and, and Durga and all the rest of them. And they don't mind that bunch of um, atheists over there. 
are all the scientists. And they're quite happy to have you Buddhists here. Because it's all going to lead everyone to enlightenment. Everyone on the path needs to have one life as a Christian, one life as a Hindu, one life as a Buddhist and so forth. Muslim, all the various sects. One inclination to black skin, one inclination to brown skin, one inclination or more into white skin and so forth. Because that is what makes the whole crucible of experience that leads to enlightenment. If you only had one type of experience over and over and over and over and over and over again, uh, you might be an expert in that, but you're a total child, a baby, an adolescent in everything else. You're not going to become a very good enlightened being. It's not possible. An enlightened one has to know everything that is possible to know to do in this planetary sphere. And that means every type of experience. And great bodhisattvas are reincarnated into every religion for that reason. They've started those religions. They were incarnated as scientists. You know, you get a scientist like Einstein that says, God does not play dice with the universe. Wow, look at that. What a great statement. And others that are totally atheistic. Does it matter? They are doing their science for the benefit of humanity. Of course, they're making lots of money for themselves, and maybe that may be an ulterior motive. Of course, there's many on this planet that are only interested in themselves, maximally. And nations like that, maximally. Rip off, take off, take from everyone else, whatever you can, because your own pleasure and your own power on this earth is the only thing that matters. They're busy destroying the fabric of life as we know it, whereas we're trying to build it. So the Dharma is important, yes. But it's important that you find the right Dharma for you. And don't criticize somebody over there because they have a different type of Dharma. Because for them, according to the cup that they have offered, according to the karma that is manifesting in Srinath, according to where they've come from past lives and where they're going to, that is the right thing for them. Be thankful that they are Christians. They have much to give to this world. And we are thankful that they are Buddhists. Because they likewise have much to give to this world. What we don't like, of course, is warring parties. People attacking each other because of religion or faith or creed or colour of skin and so forth. Or caste or... This is abomination, yes? We want everyone to respect each other for what they are. The right Dharma for everyone. And next life, the person that was black in one life suddenly becomes white. The person that was Jew in one life suddenly becomes Christian or Buddhist. It's all equalized according to the laws of karma and life progresses on. Eventually, the Bodhisattva path finds everyone. The planet becomes a sacred planet. The new age has entered. Garden city of Mother Earth is everywhere flourishing. And people are not ripping everyone off in order to produce selfish empires of separative concern. So, the Dharma is important. The right Dharma is important for who you are. And, according to your level of bodhisattvahood, then 
your karma will find itself to teach it as incarnated. That is the center of your mandala, that is the heart of your life, and that is the Buddha. The Buddha is incarnate, you have incarnated. The karma will work out at the right time for you to meet the Buddha. Then you bow, you offer your obeisance, and we continue from where past lives had been left off. Not that it's ever, ever stopped. Because whether you're in a bardo state or whether you're in a human body is immaterial, is it not? The transmission between the guru, the living Buddha, and the disciple continues no matter. The only thing that is the problem is the ignorance level of the disciple when they meet the master. And it's the master's duty to cleanse that ignorance level out of the disciple to give to them the knowledge that they need to fix up the samskaras so that the hindrances to enlightenment all the blocks are cleansed out so that one can manifest spontaneously, effortlessly and joyfully all attributes of the path to enlightenment become wise, to become living examples for all sentient beings of what to do. Does it really matter the religious cloak? It does not. What matters is the fundamental duty to helping sentient beings and how best a disciple can be equipped. Whether they're scientists or whether they're religionists or whether they're musicians or whether they're bank clerks or whether they sort of um, um, shopkeeper or even the common labourer on the street it is so immaterial whether they're super rich or whether they're poor immaterial is all the um, continuances of karma and the rich person is bound to offer their wealth to help the sangha um, the poor people is bound to offer their labour to help the sangha it all is equalised out and all becomes the community of sharing the common wealth. <coughs> so that's the, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, the Three Jewels. And it manifests in different ways. Um, depending on your karma, depending on your ignorance level, depending on the Guru's ignorance level. So um, it will manifest. There are many, many teachers on this planet, many Gurus many, um, I won't say the word enlightened ones, I don't see too many of that, but many with different levels of enlightenment, with their um, contingency of um, students around them, giving them the level of education they need. Because the master or the one that's incarnated as their teacher is what they need. The teacher um, may need to go to a high teacher, for higher revelations and so forth. And it does not stop. Even when one becomes a Buddha, there are many teachers in cosmos that were Buddhas before this earth was, before the solar system was, to teach them a thing or two about that world and its vast, multi-dimensional, um, intergalactical space. Billions of planets out there bearing life forms such as ours. 
not necessarily in physical bodies, because life is much more than physical forms. What about samskaras that come through from your past lives of material indulgence? Mm. Um, the disciple has to cleanse these. And generally, they come out in the form of psychic sicknesses, psychic aberrations, sometimes debilitating physical plane sicknesses, bad backs, often coming through young yogic practices that have um, went wrong because they were not practicing properly or aberrating mantras. What about your affiliations with the dark camp, with um, black magic, with controlling of people's um, resources, bodily, emotional, sexual, their monetary resources, manipulating whole nations maybe. There's a whole aspects of dark brotherhood, the forces of evil, um, that you have a lot of karma with, that are brought up to the surface. And as you develop this path, as you awaken to your psychic karma, you begin to awaken the cities, psychic powers, which comes to you as a course of your meditative cleansings. Then you open up um, past lives of magical practices when you're involved in Tantra, but your mind was askew, your mind was not clean. Sex yoga, stacks and stacks and stacks of karma there to fix up for many disciples. This is another aspect of karma and discipleship which is more hidden, veiled, esoteric. It's not written about much in the books because if it was so, then we would produce a lot of karma for ourselves because the students will often um, either awaken to um, psychic stakes prematurely before there's a teacher around to help them cleanse it. Or they would be lured by the concept of sex magic into producing um, practices of the past which they should not anymore be practicing because samskaras come to the surface. Samskaras come to the surface of all types of practices. Whether it's the um, practice of meditation for enlightenment, for awakening, for liberation, or the practices of, of selfish, manipulative, psychic powers. And believe me, um, one can control the weather, one can control other people's emotions, one can control other people's lives, one can cause death, one can cause all forms of sicknesses, one can control people's sexualities through wrong magical practices. And believe me, when one goes into the lives of disciples of Bodhisattvas and one goes back far enough, they are those lives where those types of practices have been activated, manifested, and they have to be cleansed. And this again necessitates the Sangha. Without the help of the Sangha, because generally within the Sangha you find your fellow practitioners. You generally manifested some terrible deeds in the past. As I said, some of the most cruel actions are, are perpetuated against humanity by religionists. Think about all the religious wars 
and um, then think about if you have religious wars with people who are tantric practitioners as well and how they can manipulate psychically then think about the fact that you may have been one of those tantric practitioners fixed up by somebody like Middle Ripper like Marpa had to do with Middle Ripper is a good example and then set on the right path after cleansing some of the karma but it's not all cleanse in one life never cleanse in one life there's many many lives gone into such practices and it takes life after life of reverberation to cleanse and Milarepa himself had to spend more lives cleansing oh that was one life of a sequence where he was cleansing black magical or wrong tantric practices so it's something like um, what often I think of a distillation unit any of you have done any chemistry at school and you've had to distill you get water that's full of mud and you want to clean um, or it's more than full of mud it's got different types of liquids in it and you want sort of high octane fuel up there and then um, at the bottom is this black stuff that's left it's tar and in between is um, petrol and diesel and all these other types of fuel this distillation unit is something like what the chakras are in the body each chakra um, distills to a higher and higher um, subtler um, level the efflorescence of, of the pranas and when the master is looking at the disciples this distillation unit comes in and qualities have to be distilled from life to life and they start off with this tarry type um, oil substance which is basic human life expression and eventually you get the highest ether the highest form of alcohol the highest um, that can be ignited as the enlightenment consciousness and each chakra goes through this the nadis are busy cleansing this as through your life think of all your gross emotions um, your gross aspects of your mind that you developed when you were younger um, sexual attractments this way and that yes um, all types of lures of, um, of material plane indulgences and so forth and eventually on the path all these samskaras all of these pranas that you generated have to be cleansed and the, the stronger the habit patterning the more of a drunk they were the harder it is to cleanse and so this distillation unit comes and has to be cycled again and again through the chakras until eventually the, um, the muddy stuff is washed away and as they are washed out of your body they produce sicknesses um, sicknesses and disease certain, there's certain types of diseases and sicknesses that are prone to disciples because of this cleansing process it's essential. It comes out of the body. The body is becoming refined. The pranas are, are grey, dirty. The dirty wash comes out somewhere. Wherever the dirty wash is coming out, there is a point of um, depilation, a point of pain. Um, it can come out through the nose, back, um, genital organs, eyes, ears, whatever. Um, it must come out and you must suffer the pain of um, wrong. Um, emotional and mental practices of the past and so the Sangha also helps in, um, in disciples cleansing these types of sicknesses they've gone through them themselves they remember um, and when there's a new one 
uh, somebody has gone through a certain type of cleansing, as we call it, um, we know what they're up for, and we can say, yes, now's the period of time. Don't worry about this. This is um, just a temporary thing. It will go after two weeks, three weeks. It's something like diarrhea or whatever. Um, when the people Western especially come to India, it's a, a common thing. You know, within two weeks, it's going to happen. Uh, don't fear it. Um, you cleanse it, then you go to the next cycle of cleansing, next cycle of cleansing, next cycle of cleansing. Why is this? Because the whole Nadi system in the body must become purified so that higher and higher, more intense forms of energy can be wielded. This is what makes a Siddha. This is what makes a Maha Siddha. This is what makes a great enlightened being. They have to hold the fire, the intense fire of the Kundalini explosion. It's an atomic bomb that happens at the base of the spine. And you gradually have to, you have to be shown how to liberate those energies slowly and at stages, gradually. And as the energy comes and awakened in the body, the energy goes to the line of least resistance. The line of least resistance can be your desires, can be your sexualities, can be your emotions or any aspects of your emotions. It can be some fear, it can be some hatred, it can can manifest in any which way like this. And when they come to the surface, um, there's such a thing called yogic madness that certain yogis at a certain stage can get. And that's a fixation on a certain idea. And this prevents the enlightenment. And believe me, you can get yogic madness or a version of yogic madness at any stage of the path. Uh, I've seen many, many... Um, Many of my former students leave me because they've they've um, gotten a form of yogic madness. I see it quite clearly for what it is. They, of course, think that um, they're quite all right. A fixation on an idea, on a form of sexuality, on a uh, illogicity, as I call it, and they will not let go of that for anything. That's a disease of a disciple. That's a disease that often in that life is incurable. Or they have to have some hard, painful experiences. They go away for that. Then they come back years later. They've been cleansed of that. And then we can resume with the teachings. Time is one of our teachers. Time teaches many things. When you're young and full of energy, you think that life is for the taking, right? Um, it's all there for you. Um, your, your body is beautiful, you're full of vigour, and you do all sorts of crazy things. You pollute your body of all sorts of stupid eating habits, drugs of all sorts. Um, you overindulge in sexuality. Uh, you eat the wrong types of foods. Uh, you get into all sorts of emotional extremisms. Later, you must pay for it all. Those types of drugs, those types of um, toxins that you put into your body are stored there. They have to come out in discipleship. When they come out, they cause sicknesses. They can cause yogic madness. And if you had lifetimes of producing this sort of thing, it becomes very difficult. As a matter of fact, somebody has had lifetimes of a certain type of mentalistic illness. They will not listen very long to somebody like me. They've got another agenda, and the agenda basically is to teach others their mentalistic illness, to infect others with it. This is um, 
to pop. And this is the reason why. You can't go to a teacher and give them a thousand dollars and think at the end of three months or a year or two even that you're going to become some sort of great healer or enlightened person. No, not in this path. In this path you offer your whole life. Your body, speech and life. You bow down low before your teacher and then the teacher gives you the teachings that's going to make you sick. It's going to give you level after level of psychic cleansing. That's going to cause a lot of psychic attack because you'll have to cleanse your psychic misdeeds from past lives. That's going to cause you to have probably a few emotional tirades, conundrums of plenty, as you try to understand this or that aspect of the teachings. But it's all to cleanse you of what in past lives and the early part of this life you committed that prevent you from becoming an enlightened being, pre prevent you from becoming truly a server and saviour of humanity. Humbleness, you humble yourself in this way to serve the planet. You must free your mind of all impediments, body, speech and mind, all aspects. Nothing, no stone can be left untouched. Nothing cannot be looked at. Your mind eventually must become clear Clear mind is what we produce. In Buddhism, in the Nyingma teaching, we call it natural state of mind. The mind is empty of everything but itself. It is its natural state. It does not have one thought. Right? It's a virgin. Do you understand a virgin mind? Not one thought in it. It is as clear and crisp and clean as the day it was created. That is what you're trying to get to. No I, me, mine. No um, masses of sectarian and dogmatic logic. No mountains of materialistic thinking. No worries or concerns about this or that. Empty of all thoughts. Empty of all desires. Shunyata, yes? It's not really shunyata either. It's a nexus. It is not empty of samsara. It is not empty in itself. It is in a state of poised tension, as I call it. Any thought, any impression that impinges upon it, automatically, myriads of lines, as I, we call them antakranas in Sanskrit, lines of interconnectedness appear. And that thing is understood in totality for what it is. Pros, cons, whereabouts and where it's going to. Natural state of mind. Wonderful mind, yes. You can see how difficult it is in reality to achieve it. Because all the time there's some little thing, some nagging thought, some I mean mind, some aspect of samsara that is interfering with the peace, the tranquility. This is the reason why um, in the training in the past has always necessitated monastic seclusion. Living in the cave, living in the forest, away from people. The body is being looked after by devotees or by the, the community of monks because all distractions prevent the development of this natural state of mind. Luckily for all of you now, 
we who are the guides of the race, so to speak, of, of uh, meditators, have devised a way to teach you how to develop this natural state of mind while you're living in samsara, while you're doing your shopkeeping sort of duties, while you're driving down the street. It can be still clear and empty of things other than the task immediately ahead of you. Everything else is serene, calm, tranquil. There's no need to be thinking of the latest pop music or um, whatever else is out there. You see the flowers, you see the, the road ahead, you see the people. It's all passing mirage, it's a, it's a passing fancy, it's, it's samsara that's just fleeting by. You are in this void of space that stretches boundless, vast in every direction that you can look at. Clean, crisp. It knows where it's going to and what it's doing. And does not need to think at that moment about anything. Only when suddenly there's a traffic light or something like that does it awaken to that and reacts accordingly and then goes back into its space, its mind space. The void, if you want, the clear mind. You can see the difficulty that we have in language. In Tibetan you would have your terms for it, we can use the um, Sanskrit um, translate into English, but the words fall short of the true meaning. Because the true meaning is a type of, the mind is natural, but you're always in a state of awareness. Always aware of what is around. Never for a moment you really lose consciousness. Unless, of course, you may have to go to a higher dimension, in which case, virtually, or essentially, the whole bodily space stops. You may just be standing there for one second, one minute, while you're in a much higher domain, receiving some impression, and then back into the body the consciousness is. <coughs>